Is mainstream school failing your kids? The pandemic, with all the changes to schooling and daily life, is a moment of opportunity to rethink the educational path that works best for you and for your kids. So the question is, how can we as parents find alternative solutions that aren't necessarily having to do it all ourselves or pay for programs that we can't afford? I'm Jerry Kirk. And I'm Graham Kirk. Join us as we talk with families thriving on their own path We shared practical tips, wins, and challenges they've been through to help you on yours. We interview educational experts and parent entrepreneurs with education solutions for the modern age, so parents wanting a better alternative can make confident, informed choices. Welcome to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. You're ready for change. And so are we. Welcome back to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. My guest today, Michael Barton has a very special message to share that comes from him personally. You see, Michael is autistic, and he wants everyone to know that the world is a much better place because of the unique gifts that autistic people possess. Now, while he's still at a young age, he's already published two books and given over 100 talks on autism, Asperger's syndrome, and neurodiversity. Now, his talks focus on the positive aspects of being autistic, which are designed to inspire people and break down the barriers that autistic people face. Michael also advises companies on their diversity and inclusion policies surrounding neurodiversity. And these days, he works as an e-commerce data analyst for Autovia, which makes him just one of 16% of the autistic population in full-time employment. Now, in his spare time, Michael doesn't sit around. He's uh, quite an accomplished musician. I listened to a number of his YouTube performances. He plays jazz piano, bass guitar, drums, even some some pretty nifty spoons with a variety of bands. And on top of that, he's also a black belt in judo and enjoys rock climbing. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Michael, how are you doing these days in the midst of uh, the ongoing pandemic? Well, I think it's safe to say, well, nobody's enjoying the pandemic. It's proving difficult for everybody and different people are being challenged in different ways. When it comes to my job, I mean, I'd already been working from home once a week, so making the transition to work fully remotely was absolutely fine. I mean, I guess I was very lucky in that sense to be able to just work from home. My job was unaffected by the whole furlough scheme. Yeah, and in fact, I found for a lot of people, I mean, I, I've been self-employed for, for many, many years. I, I used to travel a lot for my work. I had I was doing a lot of consulting with companies and I'd have to be on site. So that certainly changed for me. But yeah, for most of my life, I've been kind of working from home. And I've noticed a lot of, a lot of people have actually enjoyed that. You know, they don't have the commute they have to worry about. For some people, if they have an office space with no windows, now they can like, you know, enjoy the, the view outside while they're working from home. So there's certainly some, some benefits as well. Yeah, absolutely does have its benefits in that sense. No commute. I mean, I can make my own lunch every day get to walk my dog at lunchtime it's good in that sense all while my actual work is unaffected because obviously with zoom and google meets and other platforms i can still meet with my colleagues and yeah my work is not at all negatively affected which is really good in that sense but obviously on the other side of things my hobbies have obviously taken quite a hit so mentioned that i am a black belt in judo i well used to train every week sometimes twice a week and i now haven't done judo since march last year and yeah 
really looking forward to getting back into it, albeit slowly, because I'm sure my fitness has dropped a bit. <laughs> and also, yeah, I can, I can relate to that. Yeah, and also in terms of music, because one thing I certainly did quite a bit was jam sessions, which is basically so a group of musicians at a pub, usually playing blues music. You put your name on a list, and then the organizer just puts four random people together in a band, and you play a few songs together. And I think it's great because when we get to meet other people, you get to play music live on stage in a pub, and I just absolutely love doing live music and yeah that's something I've really been missing during this whole pandemic way not allowed to go to the pubs and play with other people so for yeah. sure yeah and absolutely downsize how, how did you get into music I mean it's pretty amazing just how many different types of instruments you can can play you have quite a talent well it comes from a couple of things I mean firstly having a musical family obviously helps I've been exposed to music like playing music pretty much my entire life and then getting piano lessons from the age of eight so I was getting lessons every day practicing for 15 minutes half an hour however long every day for at least 10 years and if anything you could say it's part autistic talent and focus but I would also argue it's just the fact that I've put thousands of hours into my music that makes me the musician I am today because when you look at any aspect any skill that anyone has there's always a strong correlation between how much time and effort they've put they've put towards something right absolutely yeah there's nothing to be, everything to be said for um for a continuous practice like the 10,000 hours idea so Michael I'm curious what inspired you to become a speaker on autism I mean, obviously you're autistic yourself so you know there's that connection but you know not everyone decides to become a, a spokesperson so I guess my, well, my first speaking event was when I was aged 18. I'd just finished school, about to go to university, and I was invited to speak at my local autistic trust's AGM. Now, I'd been involved with them for some time, not just from when my mum went to them to try to understand more about me, really, but also it looks into how my first book, It's Raining Cats and Dogs, came about. So when I was at school, one of the difficulties... I faced was people using expressions and metaphors which are very common in the English language. Now because autistic people have a very literal way of thinking, as a child I found it very difficult and confusing to understand these different phrases and expressions that people were using. So what we did was we had an exercise book, I drew a picture of the first thing that came to my mind and then my support assistant would write what it really meant below. So this system meant that I got to learn and numerous idioms and expressions but it also helped my teachers family and friends alike to understand how the autistic mind works so then when I was a teenager I started writing a column just had one page for my local autistic trust's newsletter which was a page about what it's like to be autistic as well as a few examples of these drawings and so yeah that well, culminated when I was 18, about to go off to university when I couldn't contribute to this anymore. And I gave a talk at their AGM, which turned out to be very successful. And I guess it was from there that I started, well, looking at more opportunities to speak and word about me got out there. And well, yeah, here I am today. I discovered you had a, yeah, I discovered you had a, a real gift to, uh, to to communicate both through through writing and drawing and through speaking. So that's, that's yeah, great. And I, yeah, it's not 
just, I mean, you could say it's a gift. It's also practice because what helped me with my speaking, what gave me an advantage was that from a young age, I was performing music. I was performing pieces in front of family. I was performing at school. And at secondary school, they had a thing once a month called informal concerts. So you didn't need to be part of the school's bands or orchestras or anything like that to play. It was just for any musician to just sign up and play in front of an audience, which I think was a fantastic opportunity to give musicians the chance to perform in front of an audience because it's one thing to practice yourself, but I think just any musician needs that valuable skill of having the confidence to perform in front of people and having this very low pressure setting to give people that invaluable experience was really useful for me. I mean, that plus being part of a family band, having been gigging with them since I was 11 years old, meant that by the time I started giving talks, I was already very comfortable performing in front of an audience. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great to trace that back. So how would you define autism for, for the people listening? So the dictionary definition of autism is that it is a lifelong developmental condition that affects the way a person interacts and relates to other people around them. But it's important to remember that it not doesn't only just affect children who are autistic, but obviously autistic children grow up to become autistic adults. And while adults may find mechanisms and strategies to help them overcome some of their difficulties, that doesn't eradicate the difficulties altogether, of course. Sure, absolutely. So how common is autism? Different people suggest different rates. I mean, most recently in the UK, the Autism Research Centre in Cambridge suggests around 1 in 57. The CDC in the United States suggests around 1 in 54, which is about 1.9% of the population. But obviously this varies state by state, and this rises to as high as 3.1% of the population in New Jersey, who are diagnosed as autistic. But I stress here, this only applies to people that are actually diagnosed as being autistic. I mean, there are obviously people out there, not just children, but adults as well, some in their 40s, 50s, however old you want to get, that are yet to be diagnosed if they will be diagnosed at all. So these are really just estimates based on who we know is currently diagnosed. I need to add another point here. It's not just people realising I am autistic or I'm not, but also because autism is a condition that's defined by what people cannot do, there are children and adults as well, but particularly adults I find, that may not want to get a diagnosis because of the stigma associated with having a condition that can be very all-encompassing for some people. Just, I mean, people don't like to be defined by what they cannot do, and that's kind of how many people feel an autism diagnosis would see them being portrayed as. Now, I know you're really passionate about emphasizing the, the positive aspects of, of being autistic. So let's perhaps, let's change the, the focus instead of just what you can't perhaps do as a autistic person. What, what are some of the inherent benefits and, and exciting possibilities as a person with autism? I mean, that's exactly what I want to do in my talk, say that there is another side to autism. We shouldn't just be defined by what we cannot do, but we have many strengths and abilities as well. I mean, I've already implied my focus and ability to concentrate on things for long periods of time, which has led to me becoming the proficient musician that I am and our consistency and reliability as well. I mean, nothing is our like of routine, which some people argue may mean we are more strict and less flexible. 
But when we have a really solid routine, it means we can be hugely productive in areas that we wish to work on. And I guess I should also mention our attention to detail, which is, I'd say, far superior to that of neurotypical or non-autistic people, which means we can pick out lots of small details, which most people usually miss. Right, absolutely. Which, you know, in the right context is a huge advantage, um, 100%. So what was your experience like going through school as an autistic person? The simple answer is complicated. There's quite a lot to this question, so I'll try and break it down a bit more. So as a child, I was non-verbal until I was three years old, which posed difficulties for other people as it is. And off the back of this, age two, I was diagnosed with PDD-NOS, which stands for Pervasive Developmental Disorder Not Otherwise Specified. Now, despite the long name, it basically means I'm not developing in a typical fashion, which meant that I was sent to a special unit outside of mainstream education because when it was assumed that I had learning difficulties being unable to speak. Now, I then transitioned into the unit alongside a mainstream primary school. Um, by about age five, I mean, I was speaking normally, and then I was able to join mainstream school with one-to-one support, which I maintained throughout my time at junior school. And at age seven, I received my current diagnosis of autism, but they did say treat as Asperger's syndrome. Now, that's not the diagnosis that's currently being given, but the basic difference is people that have Asperger's syndrome don't have the delayed language development. But I was late talking, which is why I didn't receive that diagnosis, but obviously soon became clear that I was quite a capable learner and in subjects that I was interested in, for example, maths and the sciences, I would be doing very well, if not be top of the class for those subjects, because that's what my brain was wired towards. It was just with other subjects like English where I didn't have the motivation or didn't really see the point in learning about them. Where, But the school was saying, no, 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 you have to learn about this. I found that very difficult and obviously made me a difficult pupil while I was at school. I mean, as an adult, nobody wants to be taught things that they don't want to learn. But pupils simply don't have that autonomy. So, yeah, school was a difficult time for me in that sense. And obviously... There's also the social side. I mean, autistic children need to be explicitly taught social skills. Now, that obviously manifests itself in different ways. And it's quite a broad topic, a broad point to be making, actually, because, I mean, social skills are just things that most people take for granted. But it's almost as if you're trying to apply machine learning to a young child about social skills, which is a hugely complex topic. So, I mean, even now... You have a few examples of, you know, some of those social skills that weren't there but had to be worked on? So one of the main ways in which this manifests itself is that, well, autism comes from the Greek word autos, meaning self. So this means, obviously, as a child, I was very self-centred and didn't spend much time or brain power thinking about other people. So there's a concept called theory of mind, which means having the ability to work out what another person is thinking or what their intentions could be. Now, most children have developed a theory of mind. They have some understanding that other people think differently to them by about age four. Now, there are many autistic children, some even up to the age of 10, that cannot pass a simple theory of mind test. So just imagine what that difference must be like. A 10-year-old autistic child that doesn't have the basic theory of mind or ability to understand people 
that a four-year-old does. Right. So, so they're really not thinking about another person or whatever. Like the, the, the ability to empathize, for example, would, would be lacking. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's just, as I said, that's just down to how our brain is wired. And I mean, that's what spawned the myth for autistic people lack empathy. It's just, well, our empathy is wired differently to yours. I mean, I mentioned that autism is a developmental condition, but that does not mean that our empathy circuits and other circuits do not develop at all. It just means they take longer to develop than they do for most people. But other parts of our brain, like the logical and systemizing part of our brains, develop quicker than that of most people. So it's just being aware that trying to understand and display empathy as well as good social skills is something that we need to be taught how to do it correctly in society. And that's, this can take a lot of time, but it is certainly worth it because it does pay off. As I said, like, it doesn't mean we'll never get there. It just takes longer for us to understand these social concepts. Right, absolutely. And, you know, it's not just unique to people with autism as well. Certainly, you know, each individual is unique in a lot of different ways. And I think that's one of the challenges with, with standardized education, as you point out, is this kind of an expectation of everyone having to kind of go at the same pace and learn the same things at the same the same time. And, you know, that, that doesn't, doesn't bode well for people who, who have particularly, you know, differences in, in developmental um, uh, stages. So what would you say are some of the, what's in like an ideal learning environment for someone with autism? If you were to create that, you know, for, I'm looking for parents out there, right, who maybe have a, a child with autism or are, are kind of wondering maybe if they do, you know, what, what are some of the ways to support that, that child in learning I mean, That's quite a difficult question to answer. And one of the reasons being is that, well, there's a saying in the autistic community, once you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. Because even though it is a condition which we're all diagnosed with, like, I mean, that's only one dimension in the whole sphere of being human. Like you said, because autism is just one part of it, I mean, a whole other range of dimensions which define who we are as human beings so it's just very important to know this is just one part of who we are and you've got to make sure I mean the best thing you can do is try to truly understand the autistic people or children in question to understand what their preferences are what are their learning styles what are they interested in I mean things that I suggest that would work for autistic people I can suggest it in quite a general sense and I can say what has worked for me but there are going to be other autistic people out there for whom it doesn't really work at all. I mean, I'm a, I mean, if you get a young girl, for example, I mean, of course they're going to think they could be thinking very differently to me. Their way of thinking could be quite dramatically different, even though they could also be diagnosed as autistic. So, I mean, the best tip is to truly understand the individual in question. And in terms of learning environments, it's just trying to really appreciate their learning styles and just tailor everything to them as much as possible and trying to include topics and contextualize what you want to teach them in areas that they are interested in yeah i think that was what's one thing that's really jumping out for me what you've been saying is is and i think that's true of, of most kids right that when given a chance to really focus on what they're interested in what they're motivated in you know that's that's really where the learning happens and and that's where they're yeah absolutely they're it's just it's just more binary with 
autistic children like were more likely to be really interested in something or not at all interested in something which is why I said we I struggled with English lessons at school because it's not just I'm only a little bit interesting it's just I had no interest in reading a piece of text and then trying to answer the question how does Peter feel like what if that story is written 20 years ago and Peter's all grown up now like how am I supposed to understand how he feels Mm, right yeah so it's a strong there's no in between it's either like you're really into it or you're or not at all so just from a communication standpoint then when dealing with a situation like that how do you communicate that or how, how do you work through that can you give some kind of example i can work with sure well just so where um you know so, the, so this example you know it, it's something you really don't have any you're asked to do something you really don't want to to do it say a student in in that class like in your situation how did that look or how did that unfold the thing is as an adult i mean many adults do have the autonomy to say no when they really don't want to do something and other adults tend to respect that but with children particularly in classroom settings where things are more rigid and strict and they usually don't have a say in their implementation when they just say no that can be seen as challenging behavior and when you do come across, well, what can be considered to be challenging behaviour, you've got to, as I said, think of it from their perspective. I mean, autistic people aren't malicious. It's not in our nature to be naughty. It's just, obviously, autistic children have communication difficulties, and you've got to remember that behaviour is a form of communication. And it's up to the neurotypical people who, relative to us, have good social skills and a good understanding of other people. It's up to you to really show that. What do you feel like society in general could do to more to support um, people with autism in addition to what you were just sharing there? Well, I think it generally boils down to becoming a more tolerant and understanding society as a whole, just understanding that everyone, everybody is unique and different people have different abilities and challenges. And at the same time, I mean, we often are quite easy when it comes to accommodating more visible difficulties like if somebody's a wheelchair user or somebody has a broken leg but when it comes to something like autism which is an invisible condition it can be much harder for other people to truly appreciate our way of thinking want to understand how we react to certain situations so i guess it's as i said it just boils down to being more understanding towards other people you don't know what another person is going through at that particular time and with any kind of behavior with autistic people or not there's almost always a logical reason behind why people behave in certain ways and it just as you say just takes being a kind tolerant human being to try to understand and appreciate that they may be going through a difficult time or just they're in an uncomfortable situation mm, absolutely and and i think you know a lot of times it just comes down to expectations or assumptions you know i was when i was looking at at some of the drawings you know from your your book about you know hanging on for a second right <laughs> the picture of the person like literally hanging from a from a cliff and then you know what it what it really meant underneath it again again just even those little drawings may just created some more awareness and i guess perhaps a bit more empathy and, and recognizing that i can be a little more i guess aware and sensitive to to other people i'm, I'm talking to if it's clear that you know it's what I'm saying is, is not 
making sense. So there's there's more yeah, to it than it's perhaps it's I don't like see. Autistic people have a different way of thinking. Our brains are wired differently to that of most people. So while neurotypical people are able to just take the expression as a whole, immediately assume that's a ridiculous interpretation, it probably means something else, the autistic brain does take each individual word and process it and then just what's left is has got to be true. I mean, there's a quote from Sherlock Holmes, I believe he's saying, like, once you eradicate everything that's impossible, what's left, no matter how improbable, has got to be the truth. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm a big, big fan of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I'm glad you brought him up. I always enjoy it. Any time I can find uh, Sherlock Holmes shows online. So one thing I'm really curious about, too, is you mentioned uh, in your bio that you know, you're, you're full-time employed, which sounds like you're really enjoying your work. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I do mention in my bio that, well, only 16% of the autistic population is in full-time employment. Now, that figure was taken from the National Autistic Society, the largest autism-specific charity in the UK, yeah. But it just shows that, well, the employment rate for autistic people is very dire, and that's because, I mean... I think that I mostly pinpointed down to the interview process, which is biased towards social skills as it is. Even for jobs like I work as a data analyst, like it's much more important for me to be able to code and have a logical way of thinking and a good attention to detail rather than be able to make small talk and have good social skills because 90% of the time I'm given a problem which can be solved with code. Whereas I understand in a sales position... You need to be able to communicate with other people. But as I said, when working with numbers, I don't need to have a particularly good aptitude with other people. I mean, obviously you want to be right, able to... Right, so it's not your top top skill of what's Absolutely, required. but the interview process suggests that, well, you are looking for people that you are more likely to get on with. It's just a natural human reaction to prefer people that you get along with. So... It's actually better to have things like practical tests in the interview, which truly demonstrate the skills that are required for the job. Interesting. So curious too about entrepreneurs who are autistic as well. Do you know of, do you know of any? Like if, if, if full-time employment is often a challenge and in these days, you know, in the environment we're in, it's more and more harder for anyone really to, um, to get paid employment. What about people who are autistic becoming entrepreneurs? Yeah. Yeah, I do know of a few autistic entrepreneurs a number who have gone on to give talks full-time and yeah it's certainly I think a good alternative to employment but at the same time obviously being an entrepreneur brings its own challenges of like organizing yourself and then I think you need the skills to be able to approach other people and really just get contacts and be able to do your own work from there so being self-employed does bring its own set of challenges but I certainly can say it can be attractive to autistic people because, well, you are your own boss. You're just working with yourself, essentially. I mean, I don't know what the self-employed rates for autistic people are, but yeah, I'd certainly say it is a viable option for a number of people. So for, for parents out there who are listening and, and, you know, maybe wondering maybe a bit more or have perhaps been thinking for a while that maybe their, their child might be autistic, what advice would you have for them as they try to think through what to do? So, I mean, it's obviously in parents' best interests to get to know their child as well as possible. Now, in the UK, if you were to get an autism diagnosis, the first thing you should do is contact your GP or general practitioner, and they'll essentially refer you and put you on a waiting list. 
I would say it's quite a long waiting list. It can often take two years from referral to diagnosis. So if you're thinking about it, start now, really. Um, also, from an education perspective, in this country, we, well, when I was a child, I was given a statement of education. Now it's called now an ECHP, an Education, Care and Health Plan, which is basically a legal document that says to the school, my child is legally entitled to have support within the school. So that's certainly an avenue to pursue as well, because, as I said, the education system is not designed for the outliers, for autistic or other neurodivergent children. So any support you can get, you need to start thinking about accessing it as soon as possible. So what what else would you like to say to um, parents and others listening out there to this conversation just around topic today and i'd certainly like to mention more positive notes as well i mean autistic children in particular often develop well special interests an intense interest or obsession with a specific topic which is extremely important for autistic people it's kind of like our getaway from a chaotic world because if we have one area where we know absolutely everything about a specific topic it can really help us to decompress to wind down and it's a great source of just well having your happy place, essentially. And on top of this, it means we can become world experts in almost quite niche fields of interest. So I'd say actively encourage children to work on and indulge in their special interests. But at the same time, I mean, obviously, parents need to be parents and it needs to be done responsibly. You can't have children playing Minecraft for 12 hours on end. So it's just a matter of not saying you can't indulge in your special interests at all, but at the same time, making sure it's not done to excess. So making sure it's still there and it's still a very important part of their lives. Is, is part of becoming, uh, like diving into a topic, becoming really knowledgeable, is, is part of that a, a sense of like control of one part of one's environment? Is that, is that a big part of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody likes to have control of their environment in some way or another. And I think this is, if I can say this, almost an autistic coping mechanism to learn everything about a specific topic so that we have that one area of comfort, of reassurance. Fantastic. Well, Michael, it's been, it's been really a pleasure to, to talk with you today. I certainly learned a lot more about autism itself, and I hope a lot of people out there have been inspired as much as I have today. How can people uh, get in, in touch with you if they'd like to, to contact and maybe, you know, have you give a talk or, or you know, get one of, get one of your books or even yeah, just, absolutely. you know, I mean, people are more than welcome to get in touch with me, book me for a talk or anything. You can go and find my website, michaelbarton.org.uk, or you can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn at michaelbarton22. And I also recently got Instagram at themichaelbarton. So, yeah, Look numerous ways to contact me however you'd like. Fantastic. And we'll include the, the link to those in the, the show notes so people can find that there as well. So again, Michael, uh, thanks so much for being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Jerry.